You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And by not encouraging businesses to report certain cyber incidents, ultimately we lose really valuable insights into what the current kind of cyber threat landscape is and how we can can go about you know, improving and, and actually protecting our businesses better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses the Supreme Court taking up Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. I've got the story of a judge in Buenos Aires declaring facial recognition software unconstitutional. And later in the show, we've got Scott Holowinski from Arctic Wolf. He's discussing the enactment of countrywide safe harbor laws. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. All right, Ben, uh, before we jump into our stories this week, we got a little bit of follow-up here. A listener named Neil wrote in and said, First, tremendous interview about Edward Snowden. Your interviewees' measured and thoughtful opinions were an utter joy to listen to. Uh, I agree. I had nothing to do with that interview, <laughs> which made it even better for me. So that was, he's talking about Ben's interview with Robert Carolina. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. I thought that was a great interview as well. So tip of the hat to you and Robert. Yeah, I know. I noticed he didn't compliment the interviewer, but I'll take it as a, a compliment. And yes, Robert, Robert was fantastic. I thought it was a great conversation. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Neil goes on and says, second, Ben said in the Cloudflare Kiwi Farms discussion that profanity falls outside the First Amendment protection. Did Ben misspeak? I could swear that the courts have found that profanity is not obscenity and that profane speech, including all the usual letter-designated bad words, fell squarely under the First Amendment. Certainly profanity is not on the traditional list of unprotected speech. Thanks for the show. Ben, what, what, what's going on here? Well, Neil is absolutely right. Uh, I try and make sure that I get every word perfectly in these interviews, and uh, I have failed our listeners. <laughs> so I uh, said the word profanity in my mind. I was thinking obscenity, which is the actual category of speech that is not protected by the First Amendment. I think in everyday parlance, uh, obscenity and profanity are actually pretty similar, but in a legal sense, there is a major distinction. Okay, which, which Neil is? gets at. Uh, obscenity is something that... Really, the Supreme Court has, has literally said, we know it when we see it, but it's huh. something that is uh, indecent to the point that it doesn't add any value to a public debate. Whereas profanity is very constitutionally protected. In fact, one of my favorite examples comes from a case named Cohen v. California, uh, where there was a statute in California 
prohibiting profane language in a courthouse. Hmm. And Mr. Cohen went into that courthouse with a sweatshirt that said, F the draft. Wow. Although it was not uh, F, as you can imagine. It was the <laughs> right, full world. Right. Full word. Yeah. And the Supreme Court upheld uh, Mr. Cohen's constitutional rights, basically saying there's no other way you could possibly convey that particular message without using the F word. Hmm. Uh, saying I strongly disapprove of the draft really doesn't pack the same punch. <laughs> uh, right, right. So, I mean, there certainly can be time, place, and manner restrictions. If you're in a public school and you're a kid, don't go around uh, dropping F-bombs. Uh, yeah. You can still get suspended. But in terms of robust First Amendment protection, Neil is absolutely right. And uh, thank you for for our correction. For so, correction. so just so I'm crystal clear here. So profanity could be part of obscenity, but it's not automatically obscenity. That's right. It's a subcategory of obscenity. Uh, and obscenity is generally defined as something that adds no artistic value or uh, political value, social value, and that runs against community standards. So mm. it's interesting that it's judged against one's own community. So something that's obscene in Montana might not be obscene in, say, Hollywood. Hmm. Uh, and that comes from a, a, a case called Miller v. California hmm. uh, on the obscenity side. All right. Well, thanks uh, to Neil for sending in that thoughtful question. Of course, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can write us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So we have big news from the United States Supreme Court. Uh, yesterday, as we're recording this, was the first day of their 2022-2023 term. Mm. Uh, and they granted certiorari on a number of cases, which means— when you grant certiorari, it means the Supreme Court will hear the case. They'll have mm. oral arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of those cases is a case called Gonzalez v. Google LLC. And in this case, the Supreme Court is going to evaluate the right of these platforms, these Googles, Apples, etc., to have the shield of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Mm. So as we know, Section 230... Uh, shields companies from lawsuits based on their content moderation decisions. Uh, so if they decide to ban somebody, uh, if they decide to allow a certain category of speech on their site, they're generally immune under Section 230 from lawsuits. Mm -hmm. uh, the question presented in this case is uh, really interesting. It's about whether the use of algorithms in directing users to particular content counts as the type of content moderation that is protected under Section 230. Hmm. And the Supreme Court is going to evaluate that question. Uh, so the circumstances of this case are fascinating. Uh, Let me just interject and say, who better than to evaluate algorithms than the octogenarians? On the <laughs> yeah. I, I'm I mean, they're not all that old, but the, you know what I'm getting at I'm going to say that uh, <laughs> our two youngest justices, Justice Jackson and Justice Barrett, might have to counsel their elders on right. what an algorithm right. is. Yeah. At least they read their briefs. You know, They generally have 20-some-odd law clerks who can right. explain to them how it works. I suppose I'm being unfair. Well, no. I mean, they are old <laughs> for the most part, although yeah. this is actually among the younger Supreme Courts that we've had hmm. uh, in recent history just because there have been a lot of deaths and retirements in recent years. Yeah. Uh, so 
The circumstances around this case are fascinating. Miss Gonzalez was killed in the 2015 terrorist attack that took place in Paris. Hmm. Uh, she is a U.S. citizen uh, who was traveling abroad in Paris and was killed as part of that uh, complex coordinated uh, terrorist attack that took place in November 2015. Hmm. And her family is alleging that part of the responsibility uh, for this woman's death was the social media companies because ISIS and radical Islamist uh, extremists are recruiting via some of these platforms like YouTube, which is owned by Google. Hmm. And Google is directing people to certain videos through the use of an algorithm based on other videos that somebody has watched. Uh, And as a result, they are sort of nudging, potentially, at least this is the allegation, they are nudging people who have a tendency for extremist views to view even more extreme content, get them more radicalized, and potentially cause them violence. Right. Uh, The Ninth Circuit weighed in on this. This is the uh, judicial circuit based on the West Coast. And there was really a divide in the Ninth Circuit on how they saw Section 230 uh, in this case. Uh, It was a three-judge panel. So this is really an unsettled area of the law. Hmm. Uh, The Supreme Court, generally the informal, uncodified rule is that four justices have to agree to grant cert in in a case. Uh, So what we know right now is there are at least four justices who believe that this is an issue ripe for review. Hmm. Uh, The consequences of a decision against Google here would be really profound uh, because companies— would now face potential liability based on their algorithms, uh, based on the content that they uh, direct their users to. It might cause some of these companies to abandon algorithms altogether, even though that's been a valuable business model for them, Hmm. uh, because they're just going to be too terrified of lawsuits. Uh, The opposition to Google, or the opposition to this case, rather, uh, comes from the trade groups that represent these big tech companies saying, if you side with Gonzalez here against Google, you're going to disrupt decades worth of internet law, internet precedent, and it's really going to hurt the free flow of ideas on the internet. People value these algorithms uh, because generally people like to be directed to content that will interest them. And so I I think we're looking at a case that could really change the internet as we know it if Gonzalez gets a favorable decision here. Wow. You know, I'm trying to to sort of uh, evaluate my own thoughts on the algorithms and using YouTube as an example. Uh, I watch a lot of things on YouTube. I enjoy a lot of content on YouTube. Uh, But I guess like everything, in my mind— the algorithm giveth and the algorithm taketh away. You know, there are times when I, when it recommends things that I probably wouldn't have found otherwise, and it's delightful. And there are other times when it's like, I'm not shopping for a car anymore. Right. You know? <laughs> like, just leave me alone. I mean, sometimes I hate watch things. I'll be like, oh, this guy is so ridiculous. I'll watch right. a clip of his show. And then now it directs me to every single clip of this person's show. And I'm mm-hmm. like, can I just pretend that that never happened? Yeah, I guess I'm trying to imagine what something like YouTube would be like if it didn't have the algorithms, if it were only based on, I guess, search results, if they, if they, if they stopped recommending things based on what you have watched previously, that's a very different experience. I mean, frankly, it would kind of suck is the conclusion I come up with. I mean, I mean, 
uh, I'm a little older than you, so I grew up in an era of television and TV guide, right? <laughs> so that was not nearly as good as YouTube. I mean, think about yeah, getting good point. A, a personalized set of videos and how valuable that is to to waste time when you're bored. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you want to try this out, use your incognito browser or log out. Mm-hmm. Go to YouTube, and you'll be directed to the most popular or searched-for content. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I have very particular interests. <laughs> I doubt that our interests match up with with the masses, so to speak. Yeah, so, count on it. <laughs> you know, the top ten videos are going to be the latest Jonas Brothers mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. music video mm-hmm. or some viral TikTok sensation or Coco Melon uh, Little Baby Bum, the type of uh, videos that babies watch 8 billion times, mm-hmm. which means that the algorithm picks that up and and uh, they get millions of views. So mm-hmm. uh, it really, in my opinion, would be significantly worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there is a trade-off because we have this example that's outlined in this case where the algorithm can do significant damage. Right. Uh, and we've seen it not just uh, in this context, but— there have been articles written about how young men in particular start by watching videos of other people playing video games, which I'll never understand. Maybe mm-hmm. that makes me an old curmudgeon. <laughs> I think it does. It, would, it does not interest me. <laughs> right, uh, but apparently right. it does interest a lot of uh, young men in particular. Yeah. And because a lot of other people who watch other people play video games end up flirting with alt-right content or other extremist content, it leads— a lot of young men, the algorithm leads a lot of young men in a pretty dangerous direction, and in some limited number of cases, it leads to acts of violence. Right. Uh, I think the question is whether we should hold a company like Google liable for those types of outcomes when they are unusual uh, and when we are trying to foster both a free internet and also an internet that is worth using. Hmm. Well— So let's come at this from the other direction. Suppose the Supreme Court says that a company like Google is liable for this. What does that look like? If if all of a sudden they're on the hook for things that people do as a result of the recommendations that they've made, how do they—what does the Internet look like? Well, these companies are going to have to change their practices or hire the best army of lawyers known to man. Uh, Because if this liability shield is removed, every time there's an incident where you can even make a plausible case that somebody was radicalized on the Internet, uh, then that is not going to be a uh, good outcome for these companies. Now, it wouldn't be a entire 180 because they would still not be liable for their content moderation decisions. Hmm. Meaning Section 230 would still protect them from being sued for suppressing certain speech. If they decided to uh, ban content from, uh, you know, extremists or ISIS or Nazis or whatever, under Section 230, they they would be allowed to do that now. Hmm. That's complicated by this Texas law that we discussed on a previous episode, but we'll leave that aside uh, for the moment. Right. Uh, But in terms of the algorithm, I think they would have to completely reorient their business model Hmm. uh, and get people to watch videos without the use of the algorithm because it would just expose them to too much liability. I mean, they could reconfigure the algorithm and still have it in such a way that it would never lead people to extremist content. Um, I'm sure the technology exists to figure out a way to do that, but it, it seems like it would be a relatively complicated endeavor. There are videos on YouTube 
that uh, are, are still on YouTube. They haven't been taken down through content moderation. And when people watch them and like them, I mean, the natural inclination uh, is for more of those b- videos to be suggested. Right. So, I mean, they could try and ban certain categories of videos um, from being on that suggested videos list. Maybe that's what they would try to do. But that's very difficult to moderate when anybody can upload a video. Uh, and there are more uploaders than there are content moderators mm-hmm. uh, in the YouTube universe. So, Do you suppose they could shed their liability here through the use of a EULA? In other words, say, you know, by, by using our platform and agreeing to to check the box that means you're on team algorithm, uh, you absolve Google of any liability that may come from your decision to do terrible things based on the things we've recommended. I don't think you can contract your way out of this with a with a EULA. Mm. Uh, certainly that would help the companies. They will have a provision like that in their EULA. Right. Uh, but EULAs aren't the be-all and end-all in legal cases. Mm. Uh, and... We've seen suggestions that the government could actually regulate these big tech companies um, as common carriers. That's what Justice Thomas uh, suggested in a concurrence in a recent case. Right. Meaning they can regulate these companies directly. Uh, and as a result, they the government would have significant authority no matter what was in the EULA. Uh, mm. They would have this, this regulatory authority. Right. Uh, so EULAs are helpful but they are not the absolute final word on the matter. And if they're, if the actions of some of these tech companies violate statutes or lead to negligence or uh, some other type of tort on behalf of somebody else and these tech companies play a role in it, then it doesn't matter what's in the EULA. They could still be held liable. I mean, that's the way our, our laws work. I see. Um, when I sign a, a waiver saying, you know, if I get injured at the ski resort, I'm not going to sue you. But the ski resort still does something extremely negligent, like not inspecting their chairlifts. Mm-hmm. That's generally not going to completely indemnify the ski resort. So right, right. Uh, I don't think that's going to be a crutch that these companies can rely on. Hmm. What sort of timeline are we on here? The, the Supreme Court takes this up. When When might we expect a decision? I would guess sometime around next June. Hmm. Uh, So uh, we have about nine months uh, of waiting this one out. Um, I think we'll have oral arguments sometime November, December. Uh, I think you and I can check back in on the story then. You can get, sometimes you can get a hint on how the justices are leaning based on the questions they ask at those oral arguments. Mm -hmm. And then they will draft a decision by the end of this term, which is uh, June 2023. Okay. So unlike some other instances where, you know, we talk about cases that are just starting through the the process of making their way through our court system, we will have some finality on this in in a relatively short period of time. Relatively short. Yes. (laughs) In the world of the law, nine months is relatively short. It's a blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I, I mean, I guess it's fair to categorize this one as a big deal, right? It's a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, I think there was some anticipation that the Supreme Court would take up this case, uh, but certainly we didn't know for sure. Uh, the Ninth Circuit maintained that Section 230 liability, although the judges on that panel were divided on the, on the issue. Uh, and I think the Supreme Court saw this as an opportunity to clarify the uh, full extent of Section 230 and its protections. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 
yeah, I'm very curious to see how this goes and oral arguments and then when the case is decided. All right. Well, time will tell. And of course, we will keep our eyes on it. Uh, my story this week comes from uh, the folks over at the Future of Privacy Forum, which is a, a nonprofit uh, who track things like privacy, online privacy is uh, is what they do. Uh, this is an article written by Maria Badillo. Uh, and th- I, I, this is a fascinating story, I think. This is uh, coming out of Buenos Aires, so Argentina. A judge declared a Buenos Aires fugitive facial recognition system unconstitutional. So let's start out here saying we're talking about the Constitution of Argentina. I am no expert. I, uh, <laughs> Come on, Ben. I know. I have, I have never been to Argentina. I don't like beef, so... Uh, as a vegetarian, I'm not sure how many food options I'd have down there. It looks uh-huh. beautiful, yeah, uh, but I am not an expert on the Argentinian constitution. But yeah. we'll, we'll do our best with this story. Okay. Well, the, the main in, the main issue here is that that set this apart and made me want to include this. So we'll get to in just a second. So basically, um, the city of Buenos Aires installed a facial recognition system as part of their video surveillance system, uh, and several uh, advocacy groups said that this was unconstitutional. They sued. They said, you know, we we can't allow this. This goes too far. Uh, And this went uh, eventually in front of a judge, and the judge agreed on a number of uh, reasons. Um, But the one that caught my eye that I really wanted to dig into is they, they talk about privacy as a collective right, redressable through constitutional mechanisms. Uh, and this is something that – this is a phrase that's new to me. So I was hoping you could unpack this for us and and explain what it means. So in our country, the rights are very particularized to the individual. That is one of the tenets of standing. Uh, as we know, our federal courts can only hear cases and controversies. And the Supreme Court has interpreted that to mean that every party has to have some type of personal stake in the matter. They have to have suffered an actual injury – Uh, The injury has to have been caused by the defendant's actions, and there has to be a a way to redress that injury, whether through monetary damages, some type of declaratory judgment, being let out of prison, etc. We don't view our rights as collective necessarily in a legal sense. Now, in a moral sense, I think there are rights that we recognize as collective. I mean— I I think we would agree colloquially that our foundational constitutional rights in some ways are collective rights. Attending a protest to exercise our First Amendment rights is a collective activity that we want to protect at the societal level. Hmm. But in terms of how actual cases work in this country, they look at whether an individual or multiple individuals in a case have a personal stake in the matter. Mm -hmm. And to understand whether those individuals have a personal stake in the matter— They have to do some fact-finding. Did this person actually suffer an injury? If it's a class action lawsuit, did everybody similarly situated in this group uh, suffer a particularized personal injury? Hmm. Uh, The best corollary I can think of to this case is a case called Clapper v. Amnesty International from about a decade ago, which was a challenge to our government's uh, electronic surveillance under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. Hmm. And there are allegations from folks at at Amnesty International and other nonprofit groups and attorneys basically saying, we can't prove it, 
But we believe that our communications have been intercepted under this program, uh, and we've suffered a violation of our Fourth Amendment rights. Mm. And the court said that you have to prove with, quote, impending certainty that that harm is actually going to happen or has happened. And that's kind of the opposite of the approach taken by this Argentinian judge who says, even if we don't have a plaintiff's actual identity, that is not necessarily the relevant factor. As long as the case is related to a collective incidence affecting citizens of Buenos Aires. Uh, so whether the plaintiffs in this particular case are representative of a collective interest, uh, it's something that I don't think we would see in this country. It mm. reminds me of a an old story of mine when I was uh, taking a college trip to Spain and uh, with, with a friend of mine. And a couple of American ladies stopped us and said, can you help us move some of the stuff into our house? They saw that we spoke English. I swear this is going somewhere. <laughs> Uh, and we were like, sure, whatever. Uh, and we went into this very creaky elevator uh, that like clearly hadn't been inspected in years. And they were like, oh, this would never fly in the States. And my reaction to that was like, you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing that we have things like OSHA and elevator inspections. Right. You know, maybe that's something that's valuable about our uh, system. And even though it might sound cool to say this would never fly in the States, maybe we're actually doing it right. Hmm. Uh, I kind of think that our approach to constitutional law is is similar in that respect. Hmm. I understand the temptation of collective rights. Uh but there is something majestic about our legal system that in every case, somebody has a personalized stake in the outcome. Hmm. We don't burden our judicial system with things that are merely theoretical right. uh, or based on some type of hunch that something bad is going to happen. It is particularized to the individual. And I think because we have a common law system, meaning judges look to past decisions uh, to, to guide them in, in future decisions— we can actually learn a lot about the law from multiple cases with some type of personalized outcome. And I think that's a little less wishy-washy than deciding whether a, a group, whether it's as large as a, a societal group, has uh, a right under the collective good. Hmm. Uh, so that's my general take on this. It might not be the most popular take. I'm, I'm certainly tempted uh, to believe in something like uh, a right to a collective right, uh, right against this type of invasion of privacy. But I actually think despite that temptation, our system is is maybe better. Hmm. So there are a number of things that, that happened in this case. I mean, the, the judge uh, came down on this and, and uh, used this, this notion of the collective uh, right. Uh, they also pointed out there was lack of control and oversight, they uh, they were dealing with an unreliable database. There there was some abuse of of findings. Uh, so a number of things. But um, I, I guess ultimately I'm wondering, like, what does this mean in terms of the direction the wind is blowing globally? This article points out that you know GDPR. There are Europeans have uh, seemingly more. They place more value on their privacy than we do here mm -hmm. in the states. Um, so what do you suppose something like this can mean on the global stage? I mean, every country has different constitutional provisions and political traditions. Hmm. 
U.S. has more robust First Amendment rights than most other uh, Western democracies. Uh, We care more about the marketplace of ideas, freedom of speech. Our European and I suppose South American uh, allies seem to place more value on this type of collective right to privacy. And maybe it's just a difference in in our experience, a difference in our political culture. Right. Uh, So it's certainly possible that Congress could enact something like GDPR. Uh, Many of the proposals they've considered that they've considered that would grant some sort of data privacy rights or uh, give people a private right of action against companies that violate those rights. I think the vast majority of those proposals uh, don't match the scale of GDPR and and don't represent the type of sea change that we're seeing with this Argentina case where you no longer uh, have to prove that any individual was uh, unlawfully surveilled. Hmm. I don't think the U.S. is necessarily close to reaching that point just based on how we view privacy. Uh, And it just comes from our experience. Uh, I think uh, our post-9-11 experience in particular where we there was a backlash, but there was also a pretty strong movement, at least for the first 10 years after 9-11, saying we actually might have to sacrifice some of our civil liberties uh, because security is a collective interest. Hmm. Uh, and um, that's something that uh, has, has stuck with us. Mm-hmm. So I don't think – I wouldn't anticipate that this is uh, going to spread to the United States anytime soon just because of differences in our – Priorities, constitutions, political culture, et cetera. Yeah. I I think it's worth noting, too, uh, you pointed this out to me before we were recording here, that um, although the judge made this declaration, the end result is ultimately that um, they sort of lay out a roadmap for the folks who are doing this uh, facial recognition for how to do it legally, (laughs) right? They're not saying stop doing this and don't ever do it again. They're saying here are the parts of what you're doing that don't fly and here's a roadmap for still getting to do this but doing it within our legal boundaries. Yeah, it is interesting that they're talking about this pretty profound conceptual idea of a collective privacy interest, but then the outcome of the case is, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, I think you could have a legal regime that supports the use of facial recognition. Hmm. Um, That is kind of similar to a lot of the cases we've seen in the United States. Uh, We haven't had that many prominent cases, but most courts have upheld the use of facial recognition as long as there are proper controls uh, in place to protect people's Fourth Amendment rights. Um, Mm. So that aspect of it is is kind of similar. You figure out a way to to make it legal. Uh, And sometimes judges, whether it's our country or other countries across the world, will give a roadmap to policymakers and say, here's exactly how to make this legal. Uh, I know we've seen that in in multiple contexts uh, in the U.S. So it is sort of interesting that even in this case that would give people a lot of optimism that we're cracking down on these types of practices that violate personal privacy, uh, the outcome of the case is still, well, if you can uh, properly regulate it, the use of facial recognition is going to be acceptable. Hmm. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in our show notes. And again, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for the show, email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. We 
with over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Then I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Scott Holowinski from Arctic Wolf, uh, and we discussed the possibility of countrywide safe harbor laws. Here's my conversation with Scott Holowinski. I mean, at a really high level, you know, safe harbors give um, you know businesses protections in in certain situations, and you know, referencing you know here what we're talking about is related to cyber incidents or, or, or data breaches. And the whole idea is, you know, there's certain rules, regulations uh, in place, which um, really penalize businesses in instances where, um, you know, they report a breach or it, it makes them subject to potential litigation. And by not encouraging businesses to report certain cyber incidents, ultimately we lose really valuable insights into what the current kind of cyber threat landscape is and how we can can go about, you know, improving and, and actually protecting our businesses better. Yeah, on the cyber side of things, what would a typical safe harbor law look like? I mean, there's a lot of ways you can, you can go with it. And, 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 you know, there is a balancing act here, right? I mean, you know, typically when you see penalties levied uh, against businesses associated with a, a breach of some some kind, you know, one of the the most common is we, we that that we all know about is HIPAA uh, HIPAA breaches. So you know, a, a healthcare facility has a breach of a bunch of patient records. They need to report that breach, and based on the size of the breach, how many records were potentially impacted. Uh, they can be fined uh, for that breach. And, and the original kind of motivation behind those laws was, or those regulations was, you know, if if an industry or a business was being negligent, you know, they just weren't doing the most basic things to protect, you know, private information of their patients, you know, they should be penalized. But what we've seen more recently uh, with a lot of these breaches um, in a lot of cases, the, the breach happens as the result of no wrongdoing uh, of the business. Maybe they were using a piece of software that, you know, had a, a vulnerability in it that they purchased. You know, they didn't build the software, but there was a vulnerability and the, the threat actors took advantage of it and, and breached the organization. The question to, to be asked is, should that organization necessarily be penalized for that? Um, you know, and that's where a safe harbor could come in. Ultimately, we want to know about the vulnerability. You know, we want to encourage the mm. business to report it um, so that we can get out into the public space that, hey, there's a vulnerability in a particular piece of software that other businesses are probably also using. Um, so, again, you know, putting some protections in place where, you know, again, you don't want to, you know, 
make it just kind of open. You know, if you, if you're doing nothing to protect yourselves and, and you get breached, um, right. that's a little different, but, but if, if, you know, there's, there needs to be some measure and, and balance here that, that really does encourage businesses who are doing things for the most part correctly and still get breached. We, we would like to encourage them to, to, to still report that. And yet not be some sort of get out of jail free card. Correct. Yeah. You know, so I think using, you know, some kind of measurement and, and again, it's unfortunately not black and white, but, but in our business, you know, my background and what, what our business does is, is incident response. We're responding to thousands of incidents a year. In many of those instances, the businesses, um, you know, were, were not negligent. They were doing all the right things. And unfortunately, you still can be breached. Are there examples of states who are doing this successfully? Not really. I mean, the, the concept of, you know, safe harbors has been around this topic, um, has, has been discussed. But as of right now, there's, there's really nobody who's, who's actually done it. Um, so, so as of right now, there aren't great examples of, of safe harbors, harbors that have been put in place uh, as, of, as of yet. And why come at this at the federal level rather than allowing it to go state by state? I mean, you could go either route. I mean, federal is nice because at least it's consistent, which makes it easier on all of us in, in, you know, kind of the space that I operate inside of where, you know, we're responding to incidents across the, the United States and quite honestly, the world. So like the more common the laws are, the better. You know, unfortunately, we've seen from state to state, even from basic privacy laws, they they vary quite a bit, which means that, um, you know, privacy attorneys and folks who are, are trying to uh, guide and instruct their clients about how to, you know, properly notify and respond to an incident, it makes it really difficult. So ideally, it would be at the federal level, just because it makes it easier to be really consistent. I mean, most businesses are not just operating in one state, you know, they're operating across state lines. So, you know, when we see things like the California, you know, privacy laws come out, it'd be great if it was consistent everywhere. (laughs) It's just not there yet. So hopefully we see in, in the coming years, um, some standardization happen here. Uh, and it would be great if the federal government came along and, and provided that framework. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to imagine, you know, how how you would implement something like this. You know, would it involve a, a neutral third party? You know, someone who could yeah. t- you know, take the information and decide, you know, what happens next. Yeah, I mean that would that's that's really the the ideal way to go about it, and you know that would need to be formed, and maybe it's a panel of industry experts who uh, is assembled to kind of do a review of the situation, you know, make a determination and. In, in, in terms of what happened, um, you know, and, and that'd be one, one approach, but yeah, you would need some kind of, kind of monitoring body, um, that, that could, uh, and again, would be probably put together of, of industry experts kind of in the cyberspace, uh, to, to really do it right. You know, it starts with a conversation, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, there hasn't been enough movement, in my opinion, in terms of acknowledging that you know, businesses today are, are, are putting a lot of things in place to protect themselves. And, you know, I think, you know, we all owe it to those businesses who are investing in their security uh, posture and doing things right to give them some protections in the unlikely event they still actually end up having some kind of, uh, you know, incident. 
Has there been much traction for this sort of thing? Are, are, there, are there legislators who are taking a look at it? There are. Um, you know, again, it kind of, like most things, it depends. You know, last summer where, you know, there was quite a bit of, of high-profile cyber crime that was, you know, kind of making the mainstream news, people did start talking about this because, again, it's very rare that we see a, a cyber attack of any type that's a one-off situation. Usually these threat actor groups are using, you know, the same type of attack and usually the same vulnerability over and over again until it becomes hard to take advantage of that vulnerability because everybody knows about it and everybody shut the door. So, you know, when we see high-profile attacks that make it to the mainstream media and that vulnerability is known about, we very quickly see it closed down. And, and, and you know, that's, that's the situation we really want. You know, we want when one of these kind of zero-day vulnerabilities comes out, we want it to get out to the mass media as quickly as possible um, so that people can who also have that vulnerability can shut the door, which is, again, the whole idea is make it, make the environment such that those businesses are encouraged to report that incident and how it happened. Um, so, you know, the general population can, can fix it as quickly as possible. Um, so yeah, when we see high profile attacks like that happen, we see conversations around, Hey, how can we better protect and encourage businesses who experience these attacks to report them? It comes up, but then when you have kind of lulls where you don't hear about high profile attacks, unfortunately it, it becomes less interesting for folks and, and, and we don't see a lot of forward movement. You know, this is that old uh, saying about how, you know, the cover-up is worse than the crime. And I, I wonder, right. you know, coming at that from the other direction, if you could incentivize organizations and say, listen, you know, the how you handle your disclosure here could come into play on what, if any, penalties there might be. You know, try to try to give them some, uh, some positive uh, reinforcement to do the right thing. Yeah, and we've seen some of that, you know, like um, actually even around things like, ransomware, which has obviously become very popular, but even in the HIPAA space, they'll have what they call like significant mitigating factors when it comes to penalties. And a lot of those mitigating factors are around, one, were you negligent or not? So they'll kind of try and make a determination of, were you doing the basic things you should be doing? So that's part of the mitigating factors. But the other one is how you responded, how quickly you reported it, um, and things of that nature. But in my opinion, the language around the mitigating factors, I don't think it quite goes far enough. You know, it doesn't say you're not going to be penalized. It simply mm -hmm. says, hey, we'll take it into account. Um, but, right. <laughs> you know, you, you still may be crushed by this. So, like, um, but so we do see some level of it's not black and white, and we'll kind of take these some of these things into account. But I think personally, and maybe I'm biased because of the industry I'm in, but I'd like to see it go a little bit further to really encourage businesses to just open it up. And, you know, hopefully as, as more and more businesses experience this themselves, as the, the, the mainstream media picks it up and reports on it, businesses get a little more comfortable saying, hey, this can happen. And, you know, it's something that we need to learn from as, you know, kind of an entire population and all work towards getting better.
Ben, what do you think? I think there's a lot of promise in these safe harbor provisions. I mean, I think it's a recognition that everybody faces threats in the cyber world. Uh, Yes, there are opportunities to be negligent. Uh, Yes, there are opportunities to not have robust security standards, not follow the NIST framework, etc. But the more we can make this a proactive effort to root out threats and have better information sharing, I think having a safe harbor provision could be a good incentive for that. Mm. So I, I find it to be something that's very promising. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Scott Holowinski. Again, he's from Arctic Wolf. We appreciate him taking the time. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cumry.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.